For the week of February 26th, 2023, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 609, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the newsmaking headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And in Burkina Faso, I'm Michael Giltz. What are you doing in Burkina Faso? What did, what did why, I miss now? Why aren't you here? I'm at Fespaco. This is Africa's largest film festival. It's taking place right now. Oh, hello, Christine Amapur. Um, it began in 1969. She's everywhere. It's never been canceled, <laughs> despite going on over the years between two military coups and extreme violence in the last year alone. So uh, full credit to them. That is film love. We're not making light of the situation. It's brave and great of them to be making this film festival happen all these years. That's terrific and exciting. They're getting closer and closer to their 60th anniversary. They just had their 50th a few years ago. And I guess the message is when you're at con, don't complain about the lines. Why is that? Well, because they're putting up with violence and coups. And what do you mean, why is that? Because they're risking their lives to go to a film festival. And we're like, oh, these lines are so long. You know, it's tacky. Okay, I see what you're saying. I'm like, yeah. I'm like what, what, what is it? Okay. All right. Yeah, there you That was go. a long way to go for that. <laughs> well, I wasn't going there. I just tossed it in. Uh, the point okay. mainly was to say largest Africa's largest film festival is taking place. That's awesome. Congrats. And well, there's a lot of other things taking place. That's for sure. Especially really? tell us about know, it. It's February and March. Well, you know, that's what we're going to be talking about this week on Showbiz Sandbox because we are pretty much we're ready for the Oscars at oh, this yeah. point. No, please. When are the Oscars? I think the two 14th? weeks. Two weeks uh, away. Ay 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 ay. Well, I mean, the SAG Awards and the PGA Awards and the Annies and the NAACP Awards, the Cesars, the Cesars happened. The Berlin Film Festival happened. We should get an award for tracking all of these awards. Although, knowing us, we'd be beat out by somebody else who's tracking awards. Uh, we'll give you the quick summary and what it all means for the award for awards. I guess, actually, it's an award of awards, right? Mm -hmm. what, what would you call the Oscars? It's the, the, the big kahuna. Yes. Now, speaking of the Oscars, Rihanna and her baby bump will be performing at the Academy Awards. And David Clearly Byrne. Morning Sickness. And David Byrne. Uh, I, I, you, you say here that morning sickness will not stop her. Are you sure of that? Can you, what, what are the I believe it. She's great. She's fabulous. She will be there. Well, the prudes, however, will stop James Bond. Even <sighs> he is getting woke. Oh, no. His martinis won't be shaken. Yeah, no. He said no more shaken without verbal consent. Uh, re relax, by the way, it's all about making money. On the Inside Baseball uh, segment that we do each week, we'll be looking at streaming. Netflix is cutting prices. Paramount Plus with Showtime is a name that is too long to say every single time, but we'll say it anyway. They are explaining their name, and we've got some <laughs> somebody, numbers about- Somebody what... hasn't read the notes. <laughs> I, no, I, I did, that's why I said it. Oh, what? Uh, well, in, in any case, we've got some numbers about uh, what people are spending on home entertainment, and uh, yeah, it's a lot. Mm -hmm. It's definitely a lot. I love the numbers on how many people are sharing their passwords. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Gills to fill us in on last week's box office. And you know he's not sharing any passwords. Uh, no, I don't have any to share. I am spending a lot. I think I'm spending about a billion dollars a month on subscriptions. <laughs> 
Uh, it's just an estimate, just wow. an estimate. And I also have to learn not to talk over your lines. Yeah, I've just given you two edits to do right in the intro. Sorry about that. Anyway, we're looking at box office around the world. We have a link to ComScore in our show notes, and we get info from everywhere, including you, our listeners. Hey, if you've got a great link for timely updates on box office in India, Japan, Korea, let us know, because sometimes we only have links that are like updated a week later, and we have to depend on the trades to provide that info, and they don't always do it, though they do a good job, and they're getting better all the time. You can, should I tell people how to do that? Oh, of course. Yes, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter, where our handle is at showbizsandbox. And we are on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox is where you can find us. I'm sitting on a couch. I'm uncomfortable. I have noise-canceling headphones on, and I don't think that works for me because I'm in sort of a, my rhythm is off. (laughs) We better not record any jazz music. That's all I'm saying. So we're looking at box office around the world for the week ending February 26th, and the number one film triumphantly is Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, $139 million this week. It's at $364 million worldwide, but it's a disaster. Why is that a disaster? Well, it's had a really steep decline, like the largest ever or practically the largest ever worldwide in North America. Uh, It's the biggest opening weekend for an Ant-Man film, so that's not unusual. The more front-loaded you are, the more you tend to drop. But it was a hard drop. It started off lower than they hoped for overseas. It's at $365 million after, you know, 10 days or whatever, and it cost $200 million to make. So they need to get to $600 million which should be a given for most Marvel movies. They're almost all nowadays making minimum $700 million, but uh, this might struggle to get there. That's the feeling after just 10 days. Poor, poor reviews, not the best audience numbers, like the first Marvel movie to get a B in an audience score from one of the major metrics. Now, we don't place a lot of faith in that sort of stuff, but you pile it all together, big drop, really bad reviews, not great word of mouth seemingly, and and it seems to follow a bigger trend of recent Marvel movies kind of underperforming, relatively speaking. You still would be happy to take the grosses for these movies overall, but it's a bad downward trend and they need to turn it around quick by making better movies, or at least movies their fans think are better. So, Obviously, week three will be a big tell. You know, you have a huge opening. You're going to fall off hard. See if it levels off or whether there's another big drop. Then you really got to get worried. If they're going to tap out at 500 million, that will be a flop. Uh, That will not be good. Well, it dropped 70%, as you mentioned. It, this week, right. But if it d- falls hard again next week, I'm saying, from the, from the levels it made, then we'll really start to get worried. And even if it does, okay. it could still well, get to 600 million and be okay. But, you know, you want to make good movies that your fans love, even if the critics don't. And I just came up with a really good joke about Cocaine Bear. Oh, tell it. Yeah, the star was always forgetting his lines. <laughs> does cocaine, cocaine make you forget bear. your lines? Oh, the bear didn't remember his no, lines. No. Yes. Because he's bear a bear. <laughs> cocaine, cocaine and lines of cocaine. Oh! <laughs> See, I don't do drugs. <laughs> I didn't even get that. <laughs> of course, he was forgetting it. Well done, well done. 
Um, Cocaine Bear. Everybody's amused by this movie. It's not that good. It's not that funny. <laughs> but everybody's just behind this film, 100%. Cocaine Bear, directed by Elizabeth Banks. Good for you. It cost $30 million to make, and it opened to about $30 million worldwide. Everybody's happy. And um, give people a line of Coke, and everybody's happy. At number three around the world is Avatar, The Way of Water. That made another $24 million. It's at $2,267,000,000 worldwide. I could not somehow get worldwide figures for Titanic this week. It was very confusing. I don't know why. I don't well, know Well, that's how. because uh, uh, I know a couple of countries where exhibitors, uh, the movie theater operators there, were called and told, you have to take Titanic off your screens. Why? They said, well, we sold tickets for it already. They said, yep, doesn't matter. You got to, you got to, we're pulling the film. They still don't have, I, I still, I'm trying to figure out why they did that. Why Disney did that. To protect Avatar? I have no, oh no, I have no idea. I have no idea why. I can't, I can't, I can only speculate. I don't know why. Can't, well, speculate away. That's bizarre. I, I do not know. <laughs> you have no, you have no there. speculation. Now it's still I think maybe the, it was eating into maybe it was eating into Avatar and they were like, hey, oh, you know, no, Avatar made uh, four point seven million dollars this week over the weekend in North America. Titanic made six hundred eighty thousand dollars. Now it's down eleven hundred screens to nine hundred fifty three screens, but that's still a lot of screens. Its per screen average was seven hundred dollars, which was about. Uh, you know, less than half of Avatar. So, you know, if they could make money, I think they'd want to make money. But, you know, clearly it wasn't a threat in North America to pass it up. Avatar was going to make more money significantly, about $4 million more just over the weekend. I can't imagine that trend would, wouldn't be the same pretty much everywhere, but that's weird. You'll have to update us when you get more information. Well, that explains that. I've I been could, looking for it. I could not figure that out. Well, I can figure out Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, that animated film made a Another $21 million. Talk about legs. She's got four of them. Uh, $443 million worldwide. Then there's a very low-budget animated film uh, being distributed. Well, you know, you know, Puss, you know Puss is actually a part a man. of... Is, is a man, yeah. You, yeah, yeah. I messed that up, I know. I was hoping you wouldn't notice. Yeah. Uh, well, he's not all man. He's been spayed, you know. Uh, mummies. Uh, <laughs> mummies, the uh, animated film about mummies on the loose in London trying to recapture some jewels for the king or something uh, that made 18 million dollars on its opening week uh, one report says it only cost 10 million dollars i didn't think there were animated films that cheap that were being distributed by warner brothers but who knows uh there's a movie that wasn't on the charts for com score but it's jesus revolution i'm not sure why not it made 15 million dollars in o north america it's a film about uh, a Christian movement in the 60s. It's hippies for Jesus, basically, this California revival movement. And we, we were just having a revival right now on our campus in North America, uh, Christ evangelicals flocking from all over the country to this uh, community for a revival meeting that caught fire. Uh, this film, however, stars Kelsey Grammer. It is in the you know, Christian movie zone. That's who it's being marketed to. That's who's going to see it. It cost about $15 million to make, which is a big budget for those movies. And it grossed $15 million on its opening week. Then over in China, The Wandering Earth 2 is still making good money. $12 million this week. Uh, Magic Mike's Last Dance is still chugging along. That made $10 million. It's just about to hit its budget level, which was $50 million. Not a good result. 
in France, Alibi.com Part 2. That made $9 million this week. It's at $25 million and counting. And then a movie that opened in Hong Kong last year is now in mainland China. It's called A Guilty Conscience. It's a drama, a legal thriller, but maybe there's some comedy elements. I'm not sure what's going on here, but it's about a lawyer whose negligence gets a woman put into jail wrongly. And then he and his team fight to make justice done and get her back out again. It cost, uh, well, I don't know what it cost, but it grossed $8 million this week. It's at about $25 million total. That's adding in the money it made in Hong Kong alone last year. It's the highest grossing film in Hong Kong history. Maybe that means a Hong Kong made film. I don't know. I'm not clear. But in any case, it opened in mainland China and it's now at $25 million total. Then we have Missing, that's chugging along, had a bigger opening overseas that made $7 million. It's now at $37 million worldwide. Knock at the Cabin, the M. Night Shyamalan film, passed the $50 million mark. The Japanese animated film, The First Slam Dunk, about a basketball team, really on fire in Korea, another $4 million. It's at $111 million worldwide. To Tom Hanks' film, A Man Called Otto, passed $100 million. Patan, the comeback film from Shah Rukh Khan, uh, that is at $125 million, or just a shade off of that. And it may not get to $80 million, but 80 for Brady, with Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, Rita Moreno, and Sally Field, made another $3 million. It's at $36 million and counting. So lots of movies all over the world. Some people were arguing, uh, I don't know if we covered this, but they were arguing, why is AMC doing this premium seat plan, charging an extra buck or two? And their conspiracy theory was that this is a way to force people or nudge them towards joining the AMC A-list program. Because if you join that, you will not pay that fee. Well, that really doesn't make any sense, does it? Because you have to go to six or seven movies a month in order to be breaking even on your $15 fee on the A-list team, right? So unless you see seven movies- Well, no, no, the A-list, A-list costs $25 a month. It depends where you are and in the so country. He, it depends where you are in the country. Right, but here in the US, $17, $17 a ticket, you know, it- no, it does pay no. if you're going to go to. But if you don't belong, uh, the, the reasoning is, oh, well, to save that extra dollar or two a ticket. Well, if you're not already inclined to save a buck or two a ticket to make up at least half of the amount, you'd have to go to six or, or ten movies a month just to save close to half of what your fee is to join AMC the A-list, right? It's about an extra buck or two to say you're not going to spend $25 a month to save a dollar per ticket unless you're going to like 10 movies. Oh, I see. And if you're, you already, you're just taking the dollar. If you already belong to 10 movies, you already belong to the AMC A-list program unless you're a crazy person, right? I'm just saying well, yeah, that dollar were, fee yeah, is not okay. going to push anyone to join the A-list. It will just annoy them. That's all. You know what annoys yeah, me? Yeah, I mean, I think, mm-hmm. I, I think that, uh, are they doing it in your neighborhood the premium c plan um i haven't seen yet i haven't noticed because that you know it it is only in certain theaters right now as they say they're testing it out they say we're testing it out no it isn't it is it is in birmingham yes because i did i did look and now i remember it is here because someone said it's only in four cities i'm like well it's in birmingham (laughs) so i doubt that's one of the four Yeah, so when they said we're testing it, they meant we're in, we're implementing it. Yeah, <laughs> <That's basically. laughs> we're testing it to I see. I think if- what they're 
Yeah, I mean, the reality is they just don't want to uh, raise ticket prices. They uh, are. For they everyone. are raising ticket prices. And, they're nickel and, and, and diming us. This is their way of raising it. They are nickel and diming right. people, and they're punishing the people who are excited to see a movie and are willing to buy their ticket early. You know, to commit to going on a Friday or Saturday night, I want that best seat, so I'm going to decide on Wednesday or a week or two weeks in advance to buy my ticket just so I can make sure I get the seat I want, and they're punishing those people. Not smart. Is it smart to uh, make more movies based around the Lord of the Rings? Warner Brothers got a lot of attention oh, of course. because they made oh, it. Of course. Deal. Is it? Okay, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just Lord of the Rings it up. Lord <laughs> of the Rings it up. Throw <laughs> Ant-Man in Lord of the Rings, too. Well, you can, we can make you know, fun of it. They already have those little people, those hobbits. Just throw in a littler guy. <laughs> well, of course, they want the rights. They made a rights with the new company that owned some of the rights. And so these are rights to the actual books, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. They don't have a right to the indices or some of the stuff based around the Second Age. That's what Amazon owns with their rights with the estate of J.R.R. Tolkien. But if you're talking about the whatever age, The Hobbits and all this stuff that we watched in The Lord of the Rings and The Fellowship of the Ring, and the, if you're talking about that era of Middle Earth, <laughs> we're all historians now. These movies can be baked. You can make young Gandalf. You can do Strider when he's out in the woods. You can do all sorts of stuff. In fact, they're already making an animated movie called Riders of the Rohirrim, which is uh, in, in the anime style. That's been in the works for a couple years. And so it is a rich world. There is a lot of stuff you can do if you want. Um, you know. So why should they not try to make money off of it? It's a rich, you know, if you can make good stuff out of Star Wars, right? There's hundreds of books based on Star Wars. There's video games. There's comic yeah, books. Why not keep making movies and TV shows? Just make them good. <laughs> Somebody jokingly said, uh, oh, they should do a Tom Bombadil musical with, uh, with Jamie Corden. <laughs> Just to like scare us into how awful it could be. But, uh, you know, we'll see how the writers of the Rohirrim is. If they make it well, people will like it and they'll keep watching. If they make them poorly, they will die and we'll all try to forget. And you know what? I'd rather the Hobbit movies not be the last thing made from that era because those were god awful. <laughs> and nonetheless, some yeah. people are excited that Peter Jackson might be in the loop. He put out a statement saying, Hey, they've kept us, you know, informed of what's happening every step of the way, and we're excited to learn more about what might be happening next. In other words, saying, We could be involved. We're not necessarily, but, you know, we could be, maybe, possibly, and that would be good in terms of quality control if they do it right this time. People are still miffed that he wasn't involved with the Amazon project. He said, you know, they reached out, but then they never spoke to me again. But that was all legal. Amazon had the rights to the certain text, and they did not have the rights specifically to anything involved in those four books or the movies made from them. So if they'd brought in Peter Jackson, it would have been a nightmare trying to argue that they weren't linked to those to that style and that format in some way, shape, or form. So they really had to walk away. Why they didn't communicate that to him, I don't know. But anyway, you're never going to stop anybody from making sequels and prequels. We've been doing it since time began. There's sequels and prequels to, uh, you know, The Iliad and The Odyssey. There's sequels and prequels to Robin Hood. There's sequels and prequels to The Grinch. How the Grinch Stole Christmas. They couldn't keep their hands off that one. They're making a new Dr. Seuss book, even though he's been dead. A new writer is going to tackle How the Grinch Lost Christmas. 
In this version, the Grinch tries to put on the most spectacular Christmas special ever because he so loves it. He wants to win the award for the best tree or something in Whoville. And a little girl teaches him, look, winning is not really about Christmas. That's that's the biggest and the loudest. Christmas is really not about winning, you mean. Right. It's not about winning. It's not about being the biggest and the loudest. It's about something else. So the Grinch will learn another lesson. Speaking of learning, what have we learned from the award season other than the fact that it never ends? Well, that is true. It doesn't end uh, because once it, it's kind of like painting uh, the Golden Gate Bridge or or the George Washington Bridge. <laughs> you start when you right get to one beginning. side, you just got to start all over. What's well, good? Yes, it keeps go Ann Thompson. It keeps Ann Thompson uh, busy. Uh, will we be having her for the Oscars? Uh, yeah, I have to give her a call. Of course, Ann Thompson, the editor at large at IndieWire, she usually is with us the very next day to tell us who slapped who. <laughs> By oh, wait, the way, I mean who won. By the way, I realize I'm going to be in New York for the Oscars, which is going to make it very difficult, but I guess that's what I'll be doing Sunday night. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, it is award season. The, we didn't win any, so spoiler alert, we yeah. still haven't won any. Uh, however, the Cesar Awards were held. Right, and the big winner was a dark thriller called The Night of the Twelfth. It won six awards, including Best Picture and Director. And some people will know the film St. Omer. It's won Best Debut Feature by director Alice Diop. I hope I'm saying her name right, but not a lot of tea leaf reading to be done here because these are just major French films you should keep an eye on. That's Yeah, the Césars are kind of known as the French Oscars. They, they, they oh, absolutely, always, of course. Yeah. But there are no French films in competition for the Oscars, so we can't see any momentum or you know spotlights coming from that. What about the Berlin Film Festival? Uh, the Berlin, for the second year in a row, the Golden Bear uh, went to a documentary, actually. Uh, On the Adamant is, is a look at the French mental health care facility. Everybody kind of thought that might might win. And, and a an eight-year-old won Best Actress. Uh, the jury was led by Kristen Stewart. And every award went to a different film. They really shared the love, as did the NAACP. Uh, they gave a, a acting awards to Viola Davis and Will Smith for Emancipation, though I, I don't think he was there. Black Panther, uh, Wakanda Forever won Best Film, and Angela Bassett won Entertainer of the Year. Uh, so that was good. Uh, though, again, m- most of those people are not in contention for the Oscars, so it's hard to get uh, momentum out of that. But you certainly can get momentum from the Annie's. But this is the national or the annual animation awards here in North America. And frankly, everybody won in a way. Now, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio was the big winner, clearly. It won the big prize, Best Picture, and four more awards, Director, Music, Production Design, Character. So, clearly, that's the front runner to win the animation Oscar. However... Marcel, The Shell with Shoes On, uh, a beloved indie film. That won Best Indie and two other awards. So that's pretty damn strong. On the other hand, maybe they can tell us who's going to win the Oscar short. Well, The Boy, The Mole, The Fox, and The Horse, which is a 37-minute short. That's barely a short in my book. But that Yeah, British, I was a little surprised that they allowed that. Uh, but you know what? It's not a, an 88-minute short. There's, there's a time limit. I think it's a 50 or 52 minutes before you're considered a feature. Um, that production won special production, uh, plus awards for character and direction. It also won the BAFTA, but it's a British film, so no surprise. So you think, okay, that's the front. Oh, no, wait. The actual short, there's a special award for shorts, and that winner was Ice Merchants, which is Oscar up for the Oscars. So not a lot can be seen there, but that's not the real story from this awards week. The real story is momentum, isn't it? Not for everyone. 
at different times, well, but for one film all at once. Oh, I see what you're doing. Yes, everything everywhere all at once. Uh, and, and and I guess you could say Navalny, but really it's everything oh, yeah. everywhere all at once. Is it's it's the Producers Guild that won won all the awards, the the SAG Award that won all the awards. Uh, it's just right. It won the up. DGA last week, the Directors Guild, now the Producers Guild, and the SAG Awards. Uh, when you win all three of those, now they haven't been around for that long, but when all three of them, you win them all, that's a darn good indicator that you are certainly the front runner and likely to win best picture not always but when they all agree that's that's really good <laughs> and really they did sweep up at the producers guild and navoni has a lot of momentum it won the dga award for best director for a documentary now it's won the producers guild award the sag people the actors are like oh we don't give awards to documentaries <laughs> sorry we're actors but that's a lot of momentum going into the Oscars. And of course, we just had Biden's trip to uh, Ukraine and the one year anniversary. So that's on everyone's mind as they vote, do their final voting for the Oscars. And really, it is just two weeks away. Uh, one thing to say about this, the SAG Awards, of course, there were some acting triumphs there, too. Wait, wait how are you? How are you equating Ukraine with Navalny? Because uh, Russia. Putin. Oh, okay. Just the Russia thing. Okay. Just the Russia thing? Russia. They attacked Ukraine. They're the biggest <laughs> no, land war I, but, since but, World but, War but II. Navalny, Putin is a Navalny villain. And, he's, and Putin also uh, tried to assassinate okay. a political opponent who represents, as best he may, as a flawed human being, peace and democracy. So you want to stick it to Putin? There's no film about Ukraine, but there is a film about his political opponents okay, and how got it. awful Putin is. Anyway. That's, so, that's Rose. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, SAG Awards, Everything Everywhere won Best Film and uh, three more awards. Four awards in all. Best Actress for Michelle Yao, Best Supporting Actress for Jamie Lee Curtis, Best Supporting Actor for Ki Hui Kwan, who will definitely win the Oscar. You can put money in the bank on that one. So that's the most wins ever for a single movie at the SAG Awards. So that's pretty cool. Uh, and of course, it throws a wrench into the works for Cape uh, Blanchett and winning for Tar, but it's hardly over yet. And Brendan Fraser won Best Actor, just as Austin Butler was looking like he had all the momentum for Elvis. So some stuff is up in the air hill. Um, now it won the oh, air hill. Oh, Lordy, here, here, it's just not my day. It's just not my day. <laughs> here's a here's a question for you though: Is uh -huh. is Colin Farrell completely out out of the picture at this point? No, absolutely. No, I don't think so because he's won awards too. Colin Farrell, uh, Best Actor, is wide open. Brendan Fraser, Austin Butler, maybe Colin Farrell. Um, my heart says Brendan Fraser will win. Yeah, that's I, I, I think it's just the emotional story, the comeback. Um, but Austin Butler, you know, he's young. They may feel like the comeback would move them too much. His 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 speeches have been very moving. So I feel like Brendan Fraser is going to win. Uh, that's just a guess. Actress is very much up in the air. I don't know. Um, some people say, "Oh, look." Uh, all Quiet on the Western Front wasn't eligible for SAG. It wasn't eligible for PGA or wasn't nominated but for PGA. It wasn't nominated for DGA. So you're not seeing a lack of momentum for All Quiet on the Western Front. And that may be true. And they say maybe that's the consensus film. Uh, the only thing going against that is that Everything Everywhere 
is wasn't divisive enough to lose the PGA award. If there was a movie that, that you know, the older voters said, oh, that movie's too weird for me, they might have coalesced around something else because that has the same type of balloting as the Oscars. So that is an indication it can triumph even as a consensus film. Uh, but, you know, it's anybody's game. And the fun fact, I think Variety said this, is that All Quiet has a ton of nominations at the Oscars. Everything Everywhere has a ton of nominations at the Oscars. But they're not competing in any category. All Quiet has all the technical awards and adapted screenplay. Uh, Everything Everywhere has all these different awards, including three acting nominations and uh, an original screenplay. The only time they go head-to-head is for Best Picture. So both films could win every single Oscar they're up for and then be there at the last second duking it out for Best Picture. That would be kind of exciting if it happened. You, you know, we didn't know this time last year. Uh, were, were the Oscars held this time last year? Yeah, I don't yeah know, we had Coda. I, Coda won, right? Right, but it was, you know, Coda only looked like it was going to win in the last week. It wasn't right. like... Well, this, it, is when people are, so, this is when people are voting. Yeah, so you know, who so knows? This, it helps to get momentum. We do know, I did not get a response yet from the Academy Library. Hey, do you listen to our show, Academy? You should, because uh, we love you. But I did send an email request for information and haven't gotten a response back yet, wondering about the overlap between the voting members of the Academy and the voting members of the BAFTAs. One story in the rap said the overlap as of one year ago was about 500 people. So there are about 9,500 members of the Academy who seem to be voters, and about 500 of them also belong to the BAFTAs. So if you win the best picture at the BAFTAs, maybe you can say there's about 300 people you are guaranteed are going to vote for your movie come Oscar time, or most likely to, right? Uh, you know, so yes, it's helpful. It's good. There is overlap, but not a ton, but same is true for a lot of other guilds, you know, so they all tend to be bigger than their voting block at the Oscars. So it helps. You'd rather win than lose. That's for sure. Uh, yeah. You were pointing something out that, you know, that, that both Western front and, and, or all quiet, I should say. Yeah. And uh, everything everywhere, uh, could both win their, their, their big awards. And then that, not win Best Picture. Well, oh, of course, anything's possible for that. It could end up being the Banshees of Inishirin, which they really like. Right. But more to the point, you can't spot one getting momentum over the other because just like at the Oscars, they're not really going to head-to-head for these Guild Awards because it's a German film. And it wasn't eligible. It wasn't up for a bunch of stuff like WGA and other things. So you're not seeing any sign of lack of momentum for All Quiet. It's just going to be a dark horse that you won't see coming until it slaps you. And then you'll say, oh, it was obvious all along. There's certainly an older crowd, I think, that sees everything everywhere all at once and goes, whoa, that's a little weird. You know, it's a a bit much. But I think it will appeal to the international community because you've got a strong Asian presence there. And it's a movie that draws upon a lot of film history from a lot of different eras and lots of different stuff and sci-fi and everything. So it might be too weird for the old crowd, but it's clearly an actress movie. It's got two rocks in it that talk to one another. (laughs) Exactly. And so if it loses, you say, ah, it was obvious. It was always too weird, is what Ann Thompson will say. Well, it was always a little odd for the older, mature Academy voter, whereas All Quiet is the more durable, traditional film that you can see winning Best Picture, a distinguished novel, uh, a classic film, anti-war. And so you could see Oscar, you know, you can make an argument for anything. Once it's won, the, the story is clear. Here's the thing. Uh, a couple weeks ago, you said that if Tar won, it would just annoy you to no end because that's that, right. Th- that would be like the one film you didn't want to win. So now you've seen All Quiet and you didn't like it. 
uh, for no, for it's reason. really a re- people are writing more about this. The German critics are taking it down, and no, it really screws up the novel in a number of ways. It ruins the title of the novel. It ruins the ending of the book and the the classic earlier version of the film, which was perfect uh, at the, to the pointlessness of war and really undercuts the stuff time and time again from beginning to end of the film i had just read the book for the first time so i'm very aware of the of what the movie changes i'd seen the lewis milestone version many years ago which is good but not great and so i'm just hyper aware of what's going on in the book and go oh oh i got angry went back to look at the book to say wait that wasn't you know nope that wasn't in there either so i really do think it's a bad adaptation i really do not like it and i think now maybe it would annoy me more than tar so watch out everything it could be all quiet on the western front <laughs> so usually, here's the question. usually though there's like six movies that would annoy me so it's not not an unusual year you're down respect. to two out of ten that's not bad <laughs> yeah what um, else would i be happy about um really i don't know everything everywhere what are the other best picture nominees i guess i would Banshee's be oh, elvis yeah no yeah i guess the top only one Gun. top gun's gonna win Everybody's- that would that would be kind of <laughs> funny, actually. I think the only one that would really not annoy me is uh, women talking, which hasn't a chance in hell. Everything, everywhere, all at once. I guess the Banshees of Inishir, and even though I have problems with the ending, and in a way, Top Gun wouldn't bother would bother me less than the Fablemans, which I think is not a good movie. I think Top Gun succeeds at what it wants to do. I. I had problems with Tar, as noble as it is and well-acted. Elvis uh, gives me a headache. Avatar is not a good movie at all. Elvis is really not that good. Uh, all Quiet ruins the novel uh, and you know has lots of issues, and I haven't seen Triangle of Sadness. So I what? guess there's... Yeah. There's only... Well, let me the, ask you this. Mm-hmm. Putting the novel aside, as yeah. a film, as No, a as a movie, film, I don't like a- it either. Yeah. Okay. I thought it was, at first I was with it, and then as it went on, it's hard for me to separate what I know from the book, but I feel as it went on, it became less interesting. Uh, It became just sort of, you know, routine war movie, Uh, something I've seen a hundred times, you know. And so it wasn't, it didn't just, everything that made the book and the earlier film versions a little more unique and different. And frankly, that's all been copied so much. It doesn't even feel that different anymore. Like the new raw recruits and the, and the tough veteran who's like, ah, you kid, he doesn't want to become friends with you because he knows you're going to die most likely. So, but eventually he softens up and helps you out and you become friends. This is all rote stuff that you see in a million war movies. Now the novel did it first and the earlier film, you know, sort of made that trope familiar. So uh, I think it just became a very routine movie, like just not that interesting. And if you just know anything of history of World War I, you're kind of like, really? Do you have to make the Germans look that good? <laughs> and the director's trying to compensate for that. He's just been quoted as saying, uh, I could never be proud of being a German. That's Oof, what he said. Right, bad, he's trying to, bad look. Which, which to me is uh, also a battle. It's like, hey, you didn't fight in the war, and your country's done a great job of recognizing its history in World War One and World War Two, and never forgetting and making memorials and confronting what happened and not looking away in a really positive sense that the rest of the world can learn from, including the U.S. and Ron DeSantis. So you should be proud to be a German as long as you keep doing that stuff. So I didn't like that either. So that turned me off too. I have no idea where the Ron DeSantis comment came from. Well, wanted to erase history and not confront it. (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah, you know, Um, his whole campaign in Florida. Boy, we're getting tiresome, aren't we? And now we're just going to get into woke stuff. Now we're going to get into woke stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Do you think Scott Adams would like to erase his YouTube video? Or is he like, no, man, it's perfect. No, 
No, no, no, not at all. But Scott Adams did not make one mistake. He is the creator of Dilbert, a office set comic strip that has sort of uh, been vaguely amusing for many, many years, you know, celebrating the travails of office life and endless meetings and things like that. I used to glance at it when I was a kid and sometimes it would be kind of funny. But for years now, he's been on sort of a white supremacist right wing tiresome rant just like us tiresome but you know really kind of ugly and getting uglier and uh, not just like i voted for trump but like really touching you know last year he made some ugly comments and a number of newspapers dropped him then now he just went on a full out white people should stay away from black people because they hate us and i've been helping them so much (laughs) yeah it's just it was this unreal right-wing hateful hateful rant and of course More newspapers just said, you know what? We're done with him. In fact, his distributor, Andrews McMeal Universal, has finally dropped him. And you know what? (laughs) It's like, eh, he's not, he doesn't mind. He's made all his money. He newspapers are barely carrying comic strips anymore. He can put it online and keep an audience of some sort. It won't be the same amount of income as before, but I don't think he would regret it at all. He wants to stand up for what he thinks he believes in. But again, this isn't like, oh, I disagree with you. This is like a hate-filled rant against black people. He said, that's why I live in a mostly white neighborhood. So the neighborhood isn't crap. And I'm tired of watching videos where black people are beating the crap out of non-black people. Like, wait, what? Okay, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, apparently people send him videos all the time of black people beating up non-black people. I suppose such videos exist, but that's not really the story of violence in America. So, you know, he's free to say what he wants, and I'm free to say, I don't really enjoy reading this comic strip anymore. And when it's bad for business, when a lot of your customers go, wow, that guy, that's kind of ugly. You know, they're free to say, we don't want to carry you anymore. But what shocked me, is that the New York Times said they were dropping Dilbert. To which I, I said, wait, what? What I get the New York Times. Where, where are the comics in the New York <laughs> yeah, Times? They have no com- Turns out, never online, never in print in North America, but its international print edition carries at least some comic strips, including Dilbert. To which I say, well, I wish you carried them in the Times because I love reading comics. Uh, but there you go. The, the uh, New York Times just sent me a letter saying that they were raising the rate of, the, mm. uh, of their subscription by a dollar 25 per week wow wow 50 50 plus dollars a year that's a big rate increase is that does that give you a print well this is is, i i I, I get the sunday times yeah only the Uh, sunday times well i'm glad you do and i'm glad you support them i can't afford to have a, a sunday print edition but if i could i would and if you could donate money i might be able to afford it but uh sperling won't put on a donate button Maybe oh, Harvey Weinstein. Maybe Harvey Weinstein needs a donate button for all of his appeals. No, he doesn't. He's 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 good. Yeah. He's not good, good, but he's <laughs> he's good on the money front. I think that's true. He just got sentenced to another sixteen years behind bars, essentially for life. And uh, R. Kelly also got an extension of sentence for some more of his uh, of the kiddie porn that he's had in his possession. Uh, but the big news was we're all doll. We covered it last week. His British publisher, I didn't quite realize, I thought it was all over the world, but it was just the British publisher announcing they were going to make tweaks to the book. As we said, hey, this is all about making money. It's been going on for decades. Uh, all sorts of kids' books, especially, get updated and tweaked over the years because the language just seems really outdated or it's wildly insensitive and not really to the point. You know, you don't need to have a black servant speak in broken dialect to be faithful to the original book. Plenty of great books never change, like Anne of Green Gables or whatever, because 
or Adventures of Huckleberry Finn when it was published by a publisher and not in the public domain. They never changed a word because they felt the book stood on its own. But lots of others that sort of churn out books, uh, they said, eh, we want to make money and these aren't going to fly anymore. So they tweaked them. Well, now we know it was just the British publisher and now the French, American, Dutch, but we are not going to touch. We're all dull. And now the UK, the publisher Puffin says, you know what? We're going to listen to Showbiz Sandbox. We'll sell both versions and you can make your own choice. That's what we said at the time, wasn't it? Yeah, we said, you know, why not just sell both versions? And you now know, they're ruining schools, James for, yeah. Bond. Good God. The Sunday well, Telegraph reports. Don't you mean they're ruining Bond? James, James Bond? Bond. <laughs> Thank you very much. The 70th anniversary of, the, I think, the first book uh, is coming up this year. And so in the spring, they're putting out new James Bond books. And the Sunday Telegraph found out that some of them have been tweaked to remove some casual racism. Uh, in fact, they wouldn't even tell us the words that they were removing. They wouldn't even say the N-word. But now they point out that in 64, before he died, Ian Fleming authorized some edits to the book To Live and Let Die, to, uh, to the book Live and Let Die. Uh, he's, he said the U.S. publishers were like, uh, we really don't want to publish these words. And he's like, okay, fine. And he approved them. Now, his estate says we were just following Ian Fleming's lead and doing the same for some other books that had some casual racist terms and replacing them with similar terms of the era that are not as offensive or offensive at all. There's also some passages that they've removed entirely or reworked, like one described an audience of black people at a strip tease in Harlem, and it said the audience was, quote, panting and grunting like pigs at a trough. Now, you might say that about any men at a striptease, frankly. But I was going to say, well, where, where's the problem with that? Yeah, yeah, no. So, But they said, uh, you know, in the context with all these examples of the N-word, which were littered throughout that book, especially because it's set in part in, in Harlem, uh, they're like, yeah, that really doesn't look good. Uh, there's another point where Bond says, oh, these people seem pretty fine, basically, except when they've had too much to drink. <laughs> it's like, oh, no, yeah. So, like, yeah, we don't need that either. And people... People are complaining and yelling and screaming, Roald Dahl, James Bond. And it's like they're saying, they're ruining my childhood by taking out all the casual racism of all our children's books. What's wrong with them? Peter Pan has casual racism, N-words and James Bond. And as you said, this is not new, right? Agatha Christie. Yeah, Agatha Christie had a book. Uh, I mean, it was eventually named Ten Little Indians, but you can imagine what it was named before that. And right. now the it's ten named little, and then Ten Little N-words. Ten Little N-words, right? And they're yeah. like... That was the name of the book for decades, until the 70s, I think. And first in the U.S., they changed it to 10 Little Indians. We're like, well, they won't mind. And the Indians were kind of like, well, actually, we do. <laughs> and then they've changed it to, and then there were none, which actually captures what's going on there. And to be fair, or at least to point out the irony here, Agatha Christie was just quoting a children's nursery rhyme from America, which went 10 Little Indians or or and ten little and then there were nine little and it was this horrible racist little children's nursery rhyme that she was quoting. So you know the publisher said, "Yeah, we don't think we can keep that anymore." And it's all about money. They're not trying to appease anyone. They're just like, eh, people may not want to buy it anymore if they saw that. Now James Bond, you can argue, and I would, his character was casually racist, not unusual for his character from that era uh, uh, in the, in the, in the, uh, you know, the British era, you know, he wasn't aristocratic, I don't think, but uh, British people of that era, not unusual for anybody anywhere to be racist. And maybe that character just was, but they've said, yeah, that wasn't really integral to who that character was. And we're going to get rid of it because we want to make money. But I like the fact that you could be able to pick whichever version you want. 
or at least that you emphasize the new versions if you need to tweak it and say, but we'll still make that available. And obviously they're always in the library. It's not like they disappear. Well, and they're, they're also online. I'm sure you can find copies of them online, right? Well, of old copies, yeah, but eventually those disappear. Yeah. But yeah, what true. doesn't disappear is big deal or big whoop. Oh, you mean the segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense? That's yeah, right. That's, Speaking of work. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, the Harry Potter franchise is a huge moneymaker, as you know, Michael. Uh, the books, they still sell until somebody takes an eraser to them, uh, I guess. Uh, the original films are played over and over on cable. Uh, a Harry Potter play is a record-breaking hit all over the world, although now they've turned it into one play, right? Like, they stopped the whole, like, you got Not everywhere. Twice. That was in the U.S. Okay. The U.K., they still have okay. two parts, and it's not everywhere, but yes, and it worked very well. You know, the Fantastic Beast films, though, I mean, I guess they're, like, petering out, right? I mean... Mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't even remember the last time one was released. Numerous cast members have problematic public profiles. Rowling herself wants to deny trans people safe havens and the box office just isn't there anymore. Uh, you know, that is really uh, one of the things that people are talking about the most these days. Now, what's a company like Warner Brothers supposed to do in this instance? Well, it just launched a new extension of the Harry Potterverse, video games. For the first time, Warner Brothers created a video game itself rather than farming out the task to a third party, which is actually kind of normal. Uh, the game Hogwarts Legacy grossed $850 million in its first two weeks. That's why we're <laughs> yeah. talking about this. It made, I mean, how is this? This is such an under the radar hit. Uh, now, well, there's been a lot of stories sense. about it. It's just video games don't get covered a lot. Right. Uh, that amount of money is more than any of the Fantastic Beast films and more than double the most recent one. So, that's and in just two weeks, money. just two, two weeks. weeks. Yeah, it's not done yet. Uh, by the way, the trending numbers show that the game is holding up. Yes, fans debate whether those who disagree with rolling on trans issues should boycott the game. Though others mentioned, hey, you know what? At least the game's programmers included a trans character. So now the educator is part of the canon. Big deal or big whoop? Well, it's a big deal. You know, people can take their stands and, you know, people can criticize them and then other people can decide, I don't care. I'm going to, I agree with them or I, I disagree with them on this, but I still want to enjoy their books and their video games, right? It's not the end of the world when you get criticism. People do take hits for their comments and actions. It's true, but she also has a flourishing, highly lucrative franchise. Dave Chappelle just won his fourth Grammy for Best Comedy Album the year after Louis C.K. won his third Grammy for Best Comedy Album. Jeremy Clarkson vilified Meghan Markle and his reality show Clarkson's Farm just outdrew Amazon's Lord of the Rings series, becoming Amazon's biggest hit so far in the UK when new episodes debuted February 12th. There was a big brouhaha about this novel, American Dirt, which was just talked about because it was the anniversary. The author received intense blowback, even though they were a person of color. People questioned her right to tell this particular story of Mexican immigrants. Well, the book sold millions of copies after the brouhaha. And of course, Michael Jackson has a hit show on Broadway, a hit show in Vegas. They're making a feature film about his life. And they may be selling the publishing rights to his music, at least half of them, for like more money than God. So... Before people yell and scream about cancel culture for Scott Adams or anyone else, uh, nobody's trying to erase anyone, but people can say whatever they want. They will also have to be responsible for it and recognize it might hurt their business or maybe not. Speaking of getting canceled, who will win the battle for control? Dun, dun, dun. The HBO drama Secession will answer that question 
with its fourth and final season. The series is as popular and acclaimed as ever, but after about 38 or 40 episodes, the fifth year will be its last. Uh, so it's really, I, I guess, is it the fourth year they're going to answer the question in the fifth year? I, I don't know. Hey, get out before they cancel you. That's that's my thing. That's kind of my joke at the front there. And dump the, sh- the you know, the thing is they cancel it and then dump the show onto a fast channel paired with some cult hit power or like dynasty or something like that. Big deal or big whoop? Uh, it's the fourth and final season. That was a typo. Uh, we're, we're referencing Westworld uh, because that was a, a huge, big property for HBO. And suddenly it's been erased like somebody standing next to Chairman Mao in, in, a, in a new Chinese documentary. Um, so, yeah, this stuff happens. But in this case, the show's going out on a high note. And quality-wise, I love it. I think it's a big deal. It's great when they can make money off a show like this and not have to stretch it out to 100 episodes just to cash in, that everybody can, it can be profitable, it can work for everyone, and they can make the show the way it needs to be made and then and then walk away. Uh, that's better for everybody. You know, it's better So is to, it after the fourth year? It's or? after the fourth year. I made a mistake. It's the fourth and final season. This so is it's the fourth. Out, okay. This is the upcoming season is its fourth. And now they've announced its final season. It's not clear how many episodes they will make in this final season. Probably maybe 38. Maybe there'll be an extra one or two. Who knows? Well, we talked last week about AI, artificial intelligence, creating a deep fake of Eminem's voice for a dance track. And of course, everyone talked about ChatGBT. Uh, I can never say that. ChatGPT. They need to come up with a better name for that thing. Uh, Of course, it has an ability to churn out stuff. Uh, Now, some actual living people are pushing back. CNN and the Wall Street Journal are saying, wait, wait, hold on. You're welcome to use our work to train your AI or deep learning program, but you're going to have to pay us. Actors who perform on audiobooks believe their unique and copyrighted work is being used to train AIs and eventually put them out of a job. It will. That's exactly what's, yes. It already is, Uh, yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, Further, fiction outlets like the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, the sci-fi website Clark World, and Asimov's science fiction say they are overwhelmed by submissions that are either plagiarism or bot-created junk. Amazon already features more than 200 titles that list ChatGPT as the author or co-author, and many others clearly use the tool to generate books without giving any credit. Finally, Michael can't even stop automated websites that yank any and every article he writes to repost them and maybe get some hits and profit from the ads they carry. So, you know what? Is this a big deal or a big whoop? I just threw in that last one. It's got nothing to do with AI, except it is some automated program that takes every article ever written and reposts it. It's so I annoying. hate it. As, as a publisher myself, I hate it. Oh, it's infuriating. And you can't stop them because there's nobody to talk to or say, There hey, is stop literally my... nobody to talk to. And, and they want to steal your stuff. So uh, this is funny. I fed a deep learning website lyrics by Bob Dylan when asking it to create a Valentine's Day poem in the style of that singer-songwriter. Now, his stuff is not in the public domain. Maybe the chat GPT should have said, uh, I can't do that. You can't give me that stuff. You can give me Shakespeare or stuff in the public domain, but I'm not allowed to base it on. But this is real. Uh, the performers who do audiobooks, and I have friends who's in the business, uh, they will not all be replaced, but a lot of work that's out there now will disappear. Of course, most books don't get turned into audiobooks, so maybe this will just be an automatic way of doing it for people who couldn't afford to hire someone. But the truth is, 
if they can avoid hiring an actor and just give it to a program, they will. And that won't be good because the quality will probably never be quite as good. And we already know that search engines have stolen so much information and stuff from print and, and newspapers and magazines that they've decimated that industry and gotten all the advertising and everybody just glances at articles and doesn't expect to have to pay to see them. And that's just destroyed them. And now they're using all those articles to train, you know, AI to write even better stuff on their own. So it's like, Hey, no, <laughs> you can't do that. But of course they can. So it's a big, big problem. And they can, and they do. Yep. So, Oh, now what is the answer? No. What's the question? No. Uh, what are you talking I th- I about? I think at the That's end of this thing, question. you should, you should say the answer is this is a big whoop. Do that for me, please. Okay. Well, Jeopardy is getting a reboot. Oh. No, Mayim Bialik is not taking over another spinoff. The show is getting a reboot in the UK and its new host is actor, writer, and raconteur Stephen Fry. The press release calls it a cult classic and promises <laughs> to add another round to the familiar mix. Fry says he loves the show, always watches it when in America, and looks forward to his new duties. Uh, the answer this is... is a big deal? The answer is, it's a big whoop. The question oh. is, is it a big deal or a big whoop? <laughs> okay. I'm just trying to so do Jeopardy. Confused. Do you not watch Jeopardy? Uh, you know, not religiously. Yeah, I didn't my whole life. I mean, I might have glanced at it. It was perfectly fine, but I never, it wasn't a habit. Uh, but now that I moved to Alabama, we, I watch it every night with my mom and my brother. And I'm addicted. I love it. I'm thrilled that Stephen Fry is hosting a UK version. It's going to be for ITV. I hope we can access it here in America. I'd love to watch it and see what he's like on it. Uh, but he hosted another quiz show called QI for 16 years from 2003 until 2016 and i would watch that show when i was in the uk and i mean jeopardy is like the classy smart game show right you know jeopardy is hard sometimes right qi yeah. please jeopardy is for children compared to qi it was so hard and all these guests would just rattle off ancient po- poetry in the greek or you know quote philosophers in latin and Ger- i mean it was just crazy how hard it was and i thought who the heck could watch this show all you do is watch and go man i'm dumb <laughs> so as far as I'm concerned, Stephen Fry is slumming it doing Jeopardy, but uh, I love him. I think he's great, and I look forward to checking it out, but it's certainly a big whoop. And the idea that Jeopardy what? is a cult classic, like, what are you talking about? It's a billion-dollar franchise that's been around for decades. It's a monster hit. It's not a cult. Warner Brothers Discovery is suing Paramount to the max. <laughs> Why? Well, they paid $500 million in 2019 for exclusive streaming rights to the South Park Library and three new seasons they expected to contain 10 episodes each. Expected. 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 (laughs) Apparently, it wasn't exactly in the contract. (laughs) Yeah, their math was a little off. After all, the previous seven seasons contained 10 episodes. That's 70 episodes. And the ones before that contained even more. They were like 20 episodes. But per the Discovery Brothers, as as Michael likes to call them, uh, Paramount got cute. The first season, get this, contained just two episodes. Just two. (laughs) Two. Smart. (laughs) It's very smart. The second one contained six, and they are told the third will only contain six episodes as well for a total of 14 instead of 30. Meanwhile, MTV, a subsidiary of Paramount, 
made a side deal with Trey Parker and Matt Stone for 14 made for streaming movies. So start doing the math there and you're like, oh, that's where the other 14 went. Okay. Uh, that's, by the way, movies, not episodes for those keeping track at home, by the way. Add them up and they've got a running time in total of about nine episodes. So far, should, so far. So far, yeah. Now, what Warner Brothers is saying is, those are our episodes. <laughs> they should be our episodes. In response, Cartman said, screw you, loser. <laughs> and Paramount said, man, we really wish we hadn't sold off the streaming rights to Yellowstone. Big deal or big whoop? <laughs> it's a big whoop because it's two big companies fighting each other out. It was really hard to find out the running time of the four movies that have aired so far. Uh, but when you add them up, it looks like about nine episodes worth of t running time. And they totally screwed them over. If a lawyer failed to distinguish between seasons and episodes and length of episodes... And how long that should be, I don't know whether it's caveat mTOR, but clearly Paramount is screwing them over. They may get away with it legally, but that's that's bullshit. <laughs> that's just crazy. Oh, here you go. Two episodes. Enjoy. <laughs> that's, like, that's crazy. If there's not a clause in there for the number of episodes. Well, then... Yeah, there must not be, or it would be open and shut. But there you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, that brings us to sounds like inside baseball, what we're talking about, right? Mm -hmm, I mean... Mm -hmm. Uh, so it is time for Inside Baseball, where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. And here's how this affects you. Just, Michael, send me a check for how much money do you have right now? Just send it uh, for me. Just 40 bucks. Right, right. All my money. And just, just send it off. We'll enjoy. Yeah. Enjoy your dinner at KFC. <laughs> oh. Yeah, that's about all you could pay for it. Okay, well, what what, do you, what have you got here? I mean, we have streaming news. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about how much money people spend and or at least how much they spent on home entertainment in 2022. And so we got a lot first? of it. What's up first? Well, I think we're talking about uh, the TV Guide is launching a, a print magazine devoted to streaming. That's, that's right. So TV Guide is like, hey, what's this streaming thing here? <laughs> so Wait, let's, let's put out a magazine that nobody will read. Oh, there you know, are still just, people who want their grid, even though there's like 500 channels if you have, you know, physical cable. And there's hundreds of channels if you're doing streaming cable, like uh, me with YouTube TV. And people still want that grid. But when you have a grid with all these channels, it takes up like 100 pages. And so there's like no room for content on the TV Guide thing. But they want to do a streaming uh, version of TV Guide, to which I thought, haven't you been mixing them in already? And they must have been, surely. Surely they don't limit TV Guide to just terrestrial television and cable. But, I mean, would you really just ignore anything on Netflix and Paramount? So that's long overdue. But if you're going to do a guide to streaming and include a grid, uh, basically you're going to have a phone book. <laughs> so so yeah, clearly, clearly they're not going to be doing the grid on this streaming version. And what was really funny was that apparently at some point when people bought and sold TV Guide to this person, they gave up the rights to TVGuide.com. Oh, whoops. <sighs> so now TVGuide.com has to be found. You go to TVGuide.com. You don't get TV Guide. You get something else. If you want TV Guide online, you have to go to TVInsider.com or something. So that's the name of this new service. And even though they also mentioned TV Guide, that's why they're embracing that name because uh, they don't want to send it to TVGuide.com because that's not them. <laughs> but what a bad deal. Well, you know, uh, maybe more people will be subscribing to some of these streamers because Netflix just got cheaper. Oh, wait, but, not, but not in the U.S. I guess they're no. cutting the cost of subscriptions in more than 30 countries. 
And uh, they've got content. They've got yeah, a lot they, of it. They, they want people to watch it. So we're talking about the markets and the countries where they're not, they're just getting in. You saw last week, we talked about Paramount Plus and HBO Max and all these others just entering territories in Africa and elsewhere. There's a lot of room to grow. And if your subscription price is holding you back, your content's just sitting there. It's not like you're going to make a bunch of TV shows unique to, say, Burkina Faso, but you do want those people to watch your service, and you are going to make some Pan-African content. And if you're the only reason these people aren't subscribing is because it's too expensive for them, it's worth your while as those markets mature to lower your price to a level that they can access. They've done it in India, and they're going to do it elsewhere. It's just 30 countries, and they're in like almost 200. So it's not everywhere or even most places, but it makes sense. If you can look at the price point and say, well, I know there's people who want to subscribe and that's money, found money. It's just sitting there. We might as well do it. Well, you know, uh, you said that we covered Paramount Plus last week. I would say we did not. We covered oh. Paramount Plus with Showtime. Ah. Yeah. And that's I right. guess I, I joked around about how much I, I'm not a fan of the name, but now they're defending their name. That's right. Chris McCarthy of Paramount Plus with Showtime insists that both Paramount and Showtime have huge brand recognition. Like one survey showed 95% of people recognize Paramount and Paramount Plus and 94% recognize Showtime. So he says, look, both labels are hugely valuable. Why would you dump one of the labels? You know, he says now Paramount is broad and mass audience. That's what is Star Trek stuff like that. Showtime is more focused, like the Chai, a show made for or made you know about people of color that everyone can enjoy. But obviously, you're going to appeal especially to black people or people of color. The L word can be enjoyed by everyone, but clearly queer people, LGBTQI plus billions is of course for the super rich. Uh, and we're not all super rich, but we can all enjoy. And Dexter, of course, reaches that important segment of your audience who are serial killers, I guess. Yes. Um, I mean, there's always, look, you got to bring the prison population in. <laughs> Come on, people. <laughs> right. They're, they're a, talk about a trapped audience. I, I yeah. want the young Dexter show. Now, I, you know, they talked about doing prequel to Dexter, and I thought, that's me. Whoa, wait a second. If you're going to do that story <laughs> about the father raising his son, knowing he is a serial killer, and trying to train him to only kill people he's absolutely certain are evil, and to be careful to protect his son so he doesn't get you know, but also make sure he focuses that evil nature, that that broken nature to something that's not damaging. I mean, that's actually kind of interesting. There is perhaps a really now I never thought the flashbacks in Dexter were terribly interesting. Uh, they were OK, but they didn't grip me. But that concept as a whole, that horrible situation where you're a parent with a child, you know, is like broken. And you need to do something about it other than put them in an institution, which is probably the right thing to do. But that's that could be. Uh, interesting, but billions. I don't think billions is that interesting, but they're going to have billions Miami, billions London. They're going to have millions for people who are just not that rich and trillions for people who, <laughs> who make the bill. That truly, that's what they're looking at. I think they should well, be doing you no know, billions is what, what I'm spending on, on, on all this right. entertainment each year. Right. I think they should be doing more like billions Moscow or billions Abu Dhabi, reach other markets, billions Paris, you know, and do it uh, billions in different languages to appeal to your different markets all over the world. But I think they're pushing it with that one. But he says, look, they've got huge name recognition. And I say, okay, yes, Showtime has huge name recognition. And maybe within your app, 
You go there and you see a Showtime label, just like you go to the Disney app and you'll see a Star Wars label, but it's still just called Disney Plus. It's not called Disney Plus, Star Wars, plus Pixar, plus whatever, plus National Geographic. It's just called Disney Plus. Paramount Plus has huge name recognition. And when you click on it and go in, if you have a little silo for Showtime and you want to keep that alive, great. But that's not a good name. On the other hand, HBO Max Discovery, Warner Brothers, uh, that has 96 million subscribers worldwide. That's where you're at right now. So that's working out. And people are spending a lot of money on home entertainment, aren't they? $37 billion. And we're free, people. We're and free. We're free. And that's North America alone. That's $37 billion. Now, that does include streaming video on demand like Netflix and Paramount Plus and HBO Max. So $30 billion of that is streaming video on demand. It used to be if you wanted to watch stuff in your home outside of cable, uh, you had to buy or rent DVDs. And eventually, you could download and rent or buy stuff digitally. Uh, now, of course, you can buy access to huge libraries. And so that's where most of the money is. But there's still two, three, four, uh, five, six billion dollars, almost seven billion dollars in rental and sales. So physical rental, people going to Redbox and renting a Blu-ray, half a billion dollars. Digital rental. Now that's where you go online and you want to rent movies. I've yeah, done it's, it easy, it's easier to, to understand. I mean, my, right. my daughter called me over the weekend. Can I rent this movie? I'm, I'm, yeah. Was, oh, yeah, okay. $3.99. Right. It's rated R. <laughs> um, digital rental, $1.6 billion. Physical sales. People are still buying DVDs and Blu-rays. $1.5 billion. And the biggest player there is Paramount. They have like 40% of the Blu-ray DVD market. They put everything out on Blu-ray for some reason. They're really into it. And Disney has practically abandoned the entire market. And then digital sales, $2.5 billion. You just said... That Disney is devoted to putting stuff out. I think you meant Paramount is really no, devoted Disney, to putting stuff Disney out. No, Disney has abandoned the market. Uh, if if right. I misspoke. And, yeah, no, Paramount is... Disney, on the other hand, is not focused on putting out high-quality, big stuff on Blu-ray or Blu-ray 4D and all, 4HD and all that sort of stuff. They're really not into that market anymore. They're all about subscribe to Disney+. Plus. <laughs> and digital sales. People spend more money buying stuff digitally than they do physically. and uh, or even combined, you add up physical sales and physical rentals, that's $2 billion. People buy more stuff digitally. It's like, I don't know if you should do that. <laughs> well, I don't know why you would buy something digitally. I guess it's easy, but... Hmm. Now, on the other hand, so much stuff never makes the transition to the library. Now we know you can't depend on it being in the library forever. They could yank it in. You think, oh, I rent HBO Max. I'm going to have access to Westworld. That isn't true anymore. Now you got to watch ads. So there's still a reason to buy stuff, isn't there? Blu-ray is not dead. Oh, I see where you're headed there. I get it because we're talking just, about just our obituaries. And we're, we're going backwards. We're talking about Tom Luddy, the, one of the founders of the Telluride Film Festival. Uh, and he passed away a couple of weeks ago. And The Guardian ha had a great tribute to his career, actually. Yeah, you and can see. Werner, you know, all yeah. these people like spoke, you know, provided quotes. 
Yeah. Werner Herzog, Tilda Swinton, Paul Schrader, Errol Morris, Laurie Anderson all talked about the impact he had on their careers and their lives. Uh, we should all be lucky to have that kind of an impact. So uh, I thought that that appreciation was well worth checking out. So we've got a link in our show notes and we've talked a lot about award season and Oscar winning producer Walter Mirisch is dead at 101. God bless him. Uh, he, he headed the PGA three different times and Ampass, the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences, the people who run the Oscars four times. So he had a great career and he and his two brothers founded the Mirish company, which was the Orion Pictures of its day. And of course, Orion Pictures was the A24 of its day. They were the cool companies that made cool stuff and everyone wanted to work with them. Uh, A24 is looking to get its first Oscar, I think, for Best Picture. Orion got six Oscar nominations in eight years for Best Picture, and it won it four times. The Mirish Company won three Best Picture Oscars in eight years. That's a lot of Oscars. So the Orion won it like four times in like a decade, and Mirish won it three times in a decade. They won it for West Side Story, The Apartment, and In the Heat of the Night, which gave Walter his personal Oscar. He was really involved in that movie and had personal credit on it. He also got two honorary Oscars because that's what happens when you actually run the Oscars. <laughs> As an exec or through the Mirish Company, Walter was involved with many great films, including 1957's Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the best film of that year, Some Like It Hot, The Magnificent Seven, The Pink Panther, The Com Thomas Crown Affair, The Great Escape, Fiddler on the Roof, Midway, Hawaii, Don't Laugh. It was a big hit and got seven Oscar nominations. Uh, same time next year. And a movie that Ron Howard keeps talking about, Bomb of the Jungle Boy. He said he loved that series. He's not kidding. And writer Elmore Leonard. This tells you how well-received Walter Mirisch did. He wrote the book Get Shorty, which was a scathing takedown of Hollywood, but it was dedicated, quote, to Walter Mirisch, one of the good guys, end quote. Yeah, so, he's a very well-known producer. And, and well-thought-of. You say, they're all well-known. Yeah. Scott Rudin's well-known, but that doesn't mean they love him. So uh, That's true. A, a great life, a great career, and a great show, even if I was amped up and uncomfortable the entire time. I'm telling you, stop you just because you're going to see cocaine bear does not mean you need to do <laughs> cocaine while popcorn is fine just stick with the popcorn okay <laughs> now in the meantime make sure you subscribe to us in any one of the podcast aggregators uh, of your choosing itunes google podcasts microsoft marketplace stitcher spotify uh, anywhere they give podcasts away for free is usually where you can find us. And please do rate and review us in any one of those podcast aggregators that allows you to do so because it helps us out when you do. Links to all of the stories we discussed on today's episode, as well as those ways to subscribe to us, can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That is also where you will find those ways to contact us. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. We're also on voicemail. We're on voicemail. We have voicemail. We have it's it. 888. Yeah, we have it. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're on Twitter. We're at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle. And on Facebook, facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox. I, I'm now, I, I think it's contagious, Michael. No, I'm getting whatever you that. have that, that allows you to. Anyway, the music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be found on their own website, whoismgmt.com. Michael Giltz has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week it's iheartstephenfry.com, which may be a website. I didn't check it out. I was, 
going to say that's probably a website. Um, but you know what? If you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry there, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his work is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. <laughs> Breaking news, breaking news. Uh, Miley Cyrus' song Flowers is on top of Billboard for the sixth week in a row. The WGA seeks approval of pattern of demands for their negotiations. I don't know what that means, but we got to figure it out. And Will Trent, this is a new ABC show. It's from Karen Slaughter, a great crime writer. I've interviewed her multiple times. I was very intrigued by the show. It opened to about 3 million viewers, 3 to 4 million viewers on ABC. You're like, that's nice. Uh, Guess what? After a few weeks, it's now up to 18 million viewers. The story is, you know, this is the whole story of TV, and they've got to do a better job promoting all these shows and how big they are becoming over a number of weeks. I don't know how it all works out, but it starts by talking to us. Yeah, uh, write to us. (laughs) And iHeartStephenFry is not a website.